I think the next big thing in health policy is a post-ACA health politics. And what I mean by that is the ACA law so colored everything that we did in Congress that it was really hard to have a straightforward, honest conversation about healthcare policy that didn't get distracted by it. And I'm hopeful that as we move past the latest um, Supreme Court ruling, and we're now you know, a decade into the law, that we're able to make decisions without getting sidetracked by, is this good or bad for the ACA? And really get back to, is it good or bad for patients? Is it good or bad for families? Hello and welcome to The Next Big Thing in Health. I'm your host, Matt Isles, President and CEO of AHIP. And I'm your co-host, Laura Evans. The Next Big Thing in Health is brought to you by IBM. IBM has been transforming industries for over 100 years. That's why IBM Watson Health was created with the bold endeavor to transform health. IBM Watson Health is committed to helping build smarter health ecosystems. That means working with you to help you achieve simpler processes, better care insights, faster breakthroughs, and improved experiences for people around the world. Visit ibm.com backslash payer to learn how IBM Watson Health can help you accelerate change with data-driven solutions. We're joined today by Eric Smith and Brendan Buck. Eric is a founding partner at Seven Letter, a bipartisan crisis communication and public affairs firm based in Washington, D.C., which is regularly recognized by PR News as a top place to work. Eric previously worked on Capitol Hill and spent a decade working for the House Democratic leader, Dick Gephardt, as both press secretary and communications director. He was a senior advisor to the Obama presidential campaigns in 2008 and 2012 and produced the three Democratic National Conventions and two presidential inaugurations between 2008 and 2016. Brendan is a partner at Seven Letter. Brendan has the rare distinction of having served two consecutive speakers of the House. Most recently, he was counselor to House Speaker Paul Ryan, leading messaging and communication strategy for the speaker and the broader House Republican leadership team. Brendan also previously served as vice president for communications here at AHIP, where he drove a major campaign on healthcare affordability. Eric, Brendan, thanks for joining us. Uh, Matt, I want to start with a question for you, though. Let me turn the tables on you. As we look at the next couple of months post-election, what regulatory moves is the health insurance industry watching during this lame duck period? And I know you just had um, a pretty you know, intense conversation. What are some of these issues that we're going to be looking at? Thanks, Laura. You know, anytime you get to the end of an administration, you need to be prepared for an avalanche of potential regulations that an administration is trying to get finalized uh, before they, uh, they leave office. And so uh, we have um, almost 18 different regulations that we're keeping track of. Um, and here we are today when the administration just uh, announced uh, huge new regulatory efforts around prescription drug pricing, uh, including uh, uh, efforts to eliminate prescription drug rebates in the Medicare program, which we think is a uh, horribly misguided and wrong idea. Uh, we'll look forward to looking at the uh, details because it's gonna lead to higher premiums for Medicare beneficiaries, higher drug prices, 
um, uh, more spending by the federal government and, and give what we think pharmaceutical manufacturers a windfall. Uh, that's just you know one of them. Uh, as I mentioned, there's 18 different ones and they cut across different programs, uh, Medicare Advantage program, uh, the um, ACA marketplace uh, rules we're waiting for there. Um, a number of important uh, rules that could affect uh, the way that Medicare pays for different treatments and services. So we're paying very, very close attention right now. You know, as I mentioned, uh, you know, the window is sort of closing though, in order to be able to finalize some of these regulations. Uh, won't uh, get into the really deep uh, policy weeds here, but there are ways that uh, another administration and another Congress can actually stop some of uh, these last minute regulations from taking effect depending upon what they are. But it's an incredibly busy time. No slowdown for the holidays here at AHIP uh, as we look to uh, the rest of uh, 2020. All right, and speaking of 2020, let's turn to the to COVID relief because that is a huge issue um, going forward. Brendan and Eric, let's, let's get your prediction on this. How will Congress act? Um, will we see movement during this lame duck period or will any action have to wait until January? Brendan and Eric, I'd love to hear from both of you on this. Let's yeah, hey. It's Brendan. I'll jump in first. You know, this the, the COVID relief uh, discussion has obviously been taking place all year, and we, we hope that perhaps there would be a deal before the election. Um, and there are a lot of politics taking place, as you know, as you're going into any election, there always is. Um, they weren't able to get something done, and everybody just sort of assumed that okay, well, we'll come back in the lame duck session right now and be able to get that done. And I think that is proving to be more difficult than I think a lot of people expected. Um, the reality is you now have an administration that's on its way out the door and has not shown a lot of interest in, in governing. Obviously, as Matt said, they're trying to run through whatever regulations uh, they can get done, but the scale of something that we're talking about on a COVID relief package uh, at this point uh, requires a lot, of, uh, or a lot of presidential leadership and we're not seeing that. And the reality is that Republicans and Democrats are very far apart, not just on substance, but particularly on the scale. Uh, you know, Democrats are talking about trillions of dollars. Republicans are talking about hundreds of millions of dollars. The, 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 the factor that may bring people together, though, is that obviously this pandemic has gotten much worse. And you, know, you have to think, what is the political incentive? What is the political dynamic that has changed since before the election? It's clearly that the, that the crisis is getting worse. And so maybe following the holiday, the Thanksgiving holiday, it'll bring people back together. But right now it feels like this is going to drift into next year and next next presidency. Yeah, Eric, I totally agree with that. Um, passing a bill of this size and scope in normal times, it takes an incredibly focused effort during a lame duck, it takes an extraordinary effort on behalf of an administration to wield the power and to force this through. Um, and thus far in the last few weeks since the election, we haven't seen really any effort for this administration to marshal this Congress and drive it forward. Uh, a, 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 a relief bill of this um, ambition doesn't happen organically. It doesn't happen by momentum. Uh, uh, it ha it ha it's a result of leadership and it's a result of really a White House that wills it to happen. Um, short of that, we're not gonna see it. Uh, I, I agree with um, Brendan that, you know, we are heading into a, an incredibly dynamic time 
with this COVID challenge. That's going to result in a lot of political uncertainty, a lot of economic uncertainty. Um, people's livelihoods are going to disappear. Uh, I think we are looking at a very different environment for public policies to make this decision in January. And I think that uh, things may happen much quicker then. How can anything happen, though, with the um, stalling that's going on right now and with the focus that's even that, that continues to be on the election? I think that's right. The, you know, the, the, there are, there's not a lot of focus. And, you know, the, the uh, regulations that Matt was talking about that the president rolled out today, it's clear that that was more a score settling exercise in the way that he talked about it. He was clearly upset, particularly with uh, pharmaceutical manufacturers and wanted to use his remaining time in office to settle the score with them. Um, and he's uh, clearly unfocused on, on the governing. I think that's why he was he moved forward today. I don't even know um, what the, the, the regulatory policy decision-making will be like going forward, um, but you're absolutely right. Before the election, at least the treasury secretary was on the Hill every day trying to make an effort to get something done. He's nowhere to be found right now, and I think that's telling. Matt, is that a concern of yours? Yeah, I mean, we've been saying that a package is necessary for months um, at this time, as we've seen the you know toll that the pandemic has taken, not just you know across the healthcare system, but on the economy. And given what that means then for individuals who rely on maybe their employer for health insurance coverage, for um, states who now see their Medicaid roles growing because people have lost their jobs, their incomes have declined and, and they need to get coverage through another source. Um, the role of testing, and, and we know we need more testing. I mean, as we've seen the increase uh, in infections across the country rise dramatically, right? Now we're running into issues with testing again because there aren't enough supplies and there haven't been enough, it's not enough funding for that. So um, yeah, it's, it, it is a concern that the longer that this continues on, um, the deeper the hole will be that collectively the nation needs to dig itself out of. Um, and I know my father, uh, bless his soul, told me when you're in a hole, stop digging. Uh, you know, you try to find your way out. Yeah, yeah. All right, let's let moving moving forward, looking ahead. President Biden, President-elect Biden has been clear that COVID is his key focus out of the gate. So Matt, for you, how will health insurance providers work with the administration to overcome this crisis, this COVID-19 crisis? Um, I think as we've spoken on, on prior podcasts and you know, we'll continue to in the future, be extremely focused on COVID as our top priority. Um, we really, uh, as an industry, I, I think have taken uh, great efforts to make sure that we were stepping up to be part of the solution back in the early days of COVID in March when as an industry and as an AHIP board uh, announced that we wanted to make sure that cost would not be a barrier to anyone getting tested or treatment for COVID-19. And I think that we built on that. And, and as we look ahead, especially um, with uh, a couple of vaccines um, you know, on the horizon within our sites, um, you know, making sure that uh, health insurance providers are, are playing an important and valuable role to make sure that everyone who needs to be vaccinated is vaccinated uh, without any cost to them. Um, that's a commitment, uh, you know, that, that we've made. And, and there are important, really logistical ways to help support that effort. And this is among the most complex 
enterprises, uh, certainly public health efforts as a country that we've ever encountered, um, and making sure that you know, we step forward and are leveraging our resources, our data and informatics. We know who um, has uh, particular medical conditions that might make them more susceptible and then should be uh, you know, getting vaccinated earlier. How do we make sure people get the second dose of the vaccine? Um, and what happens uh, with those individuals once they get vaccinated? We uh, and our member companies sit on you know, enormous amounts of data to understand what happens for those individuals that get vaccinated um, um, and whether or not there are any conditions that, that arise from that. So we wanna make sure we're engaged there with respect to testing, making sure people stay covered um, and really again, focused on being part of the solution and to be a valued resource uh, to the administration as they move forward, um, you know, focused as COVID as their uh, number one, number two, and number three priority, uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, coming into office. Yeah, and and to be clear here, you're talking about health insurance providers covering all the costs. When this is this has actually been made clear in in news coverage and what you're saying here, health insurance providers have been covering um, all the costs of diagnostic testings. To diagnostic testing and um, will cover most, if not all, of the cost of COVID vaccines. So I'm curious what your thoughts are uh, about the financial burden for the industry. Is there a concern that this will create um, financial burdens for, for, for the insurance industry? Look, I, I think we need to be smart and thoughtful about all of this. I mean, our, our members are committed to making sure that anyone who needs diagnostic testing gets it and it's covered without any cost sharing, that everyone who wants to get vaccinated, needs to get vaccinated, has coverage, will get a vaccine at no cost to them. Um, you know, there are sort of, you know, operational issues that we need to work through, but, you know, we want that to be clear that that is certainly the goal and the intent. I think when we're talking about, um, you know, massive expansions of, of testing that go beyond, you um, for sort of the diagnostic uh, purposes of understanding whether or not someone's infected. But let's say we want to go into certain cities and say, you know, what was the prevalence of COVID, you know, in, in these regions of the country after the fact um, for public health uh, surveillance purposes, right? To know what happened, right? I don't know that that's necessarily a role that health insurance should play. I think that's really more like a public health role. Um, if we're trying to do, you know, on a, a daily or, or maybe not a daily, you know, bi-weekly or other bases. Um, again, whether or not it's for the purpose of staying at work or others, I mean, we, those, those things can be covered, but I think we also not need to recognize what the cost is. There have been different analyses, and this is an AHIP numbers, um, that have said, if you were going to test every um, uh, worker in a nursing home facility on a weekly basis, based on what we've seen by way of cost, it could add, you know, over $5,000 to the cost of the typical premium uh, that that individual would pay uh, and that the employer would pay, right? So we need to think about the roles and responsibilities where the, where the funding should be. But I mean, you know, simply put, you know, from diagnostic purposes and for vaccination purposes, our members are making uh, committed to making sure that people aren't facing, you know, any, any costs. Mm -hmm. okay. And Matt, I'll just uh, jump into to make a comment about the political dynamics, uh, you know, obviously there's going to be a conversation about coverage for testing and how to approach it, just as you you, you outlined there. I do want to commend the industry, though, because uh, from the very get-go, 
health plans were staying sort of ahead of the demand and ahead of the political pressure and I think a way that demonstrated a lot of really goodwill before anybody really was able to um, sort of demand con demand through Congress that plans cover this or cover that, you're out in the beginning covering uh, testing at the beginning. And then as we got more to the phase where uh, treatments was an issue uh, before Congress was able to really make any demands, plans had already shown that they were going to. And I think that goodwill that was generated um, is going to really help as we have that conversation and make sure that we're able to have thoughtful decisions made about how we are structuring these, these programs going forward and, and particularly as we get to the, the vaccine stage. Traditional payer business models are under pressure. IBM Watson Health believes that modernization, collaboration, and personalization are key to evolving your business. That's why IBM Watson Health supports health plans in their business transformation by helping them break down data silos, drive value-based arrangements, improve care management, and engage members with personalized experiences at every touchpoint. Visit ibm.com backslash payer to learn how IBM Watson Health can help you accelerate change with data-driven solutions. So looking beyond COVID, um, Eric, let me ask you, what, what is your thought about what will be at the top of the healthcare agenda for, for the Biden administration? What, what do you think is, is their top level discussion right now? Well, uh, you know, to quote Matt Isles a few minutes ago, COVID, 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 right? Yeah. Of course, I mean, yeah. uh, it's, it's, it's eclipsing everything. And that's not just going to be um, managing uh, the pandemic, but it, the vaccine and distribution of the vaccine. I mean, this is going to dominate the discussion. Yeah. I, I can't think of another time when we've looked ahead to a legislative session and had so much uncertainty in the healthcare policy agenda. Um, and that is because we are looking at what experts say are going to be a brutal 90, 120 days uh, for this country, uh, a, a devastating period for our country. And a lot of that's going to um, put some stress on the healthcare system. Uh, and this kind of uh, ultimate stress test, so to speak, is really going to change a lot of people's perceptions and maybe driving them to draw new conclusions. So I don't. I think that you know, if you're if you're if you're someone like Matt who's been in this business a, a long time, looking at healthcare policy, I can't imagine a time when there was as much uncertainty as there is moving forward. That said, mm -hmm. um, I, I think that if you look beyond COVID and the vaccine, the thing that we will, um, that if I were the Biden administration, I would be looking at is the um, uh, is is the ACA. It's how to strengthen the ACA, how to fortify it. Um, how I think you'll see a lot of changes um, um, in the kind of Department of Justice's look, uh, the way they look at it uh, and the way that HHS handles it. Um, and uh, we can talk more about detail, but I suspect uh, the energy you see going into healthcare policy initially will be to fortify and strengthen the ACA in, respect, in response to, um, again, a really trying time for people. Mm -hmm. Brendan, yeah. you agree with that? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, certainly the, the agenda that Joe Biden ran on was much broader, public option, um, Medicare policy that clearly is going to be shelved for the time being. That still leaves ACA work that can be done. 
Um, and, and I think Eric, Eric nailed it, you know, whether it's expanding eligibility or, or, or playing in the Medicaid market, it can simply just be running the program better and, and encouraging more people to sign up. And I think that would make a big difference. And I think those are some of the things they can do potentially without Congress. Um, and then beyond the ACA, uh, the drug pricing issue is clearly not solved or done, despite whatever the administration is able to do in the last few minutes. Um, and then you've got issues like surprise billing that are still out there that I think are go still going to be resolved. That those are two things that I think actually still have bipartisan support on the Hill that you could get a legislative solution through. I, I want to ask you about surprise medical billing in just a minute, but um, but first tackling the ACA with the divided Congress, what are the chances of improving on the Affordable Care Act, and and what improvements are most likely? Yeah, Brendan? so I'll take that from the Republican perspective. Uh, you know, I think that the uh, the le the law is not as toxic as perhaps it had been for the previous decade. I think Republicans are probably done sort of banging their head against the wall trying to repeal the law. I don't know that that quite gets to the point of being excited about trying to improve the law. And I think that is an open question. Um, but there can potentially be other dynamics at play here that could be helpful. Eric talked about if we have a, a, a situation with the COVID pandemic that requires Congress to come together um, and address all kinds of issues, economic issues, health issues, does the situation get so bad that we are able to look at ACA as a tool to help solve some of these problems? There's a huge uh, uninsured issue right now, but you know, there were a lot of people uninsured before this pandemic and, and people who lost their job. Um, there, are, there are more now. Um, are there things you can do to increase enrollment in, in the ACA that don't necessarily require any new uh, huge in, uh, invention into the intervention into the, the health system, but give people an option. So that's the open question. Are, 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 is there enough political space to tinker with it? Maybe if, if the, if the political incentives are, are around COVID, maybe, I don't think anybody's going to be passing a, a major bill to, to completely boost the ACA, but a lot of that stuff, I think the administration can do on its own. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, I think that there's actually very little that can be done legislatively. And I don't think the a Biden administration needs legislative solutions. Uh, there are so many tools at their disposal as an administration, whether it's HHS, uh, whether it's other, other entities that can invest money in informing the public, enrolling people, uh, uh, making sure that, that people have a lot more information. You know, there's just so much change that can happen with ACA simply by, um, investing time and energy in telling people that it's a resource for them instead of uh, criticizing the bill and, and, and trying to prevent people from enrolling. And ultimately, of course, you know, uh, if, if, if the Department of Justice goes from, um, you know, kind of supporting challenges of the bill to uh, outright, you know, supporting the bill and, and being more active. So there's a lot of tools at their disposal. Uh, a lot of people know much more about this than I do. But uh, I, I wouldn't look for a lot of activity in, in Congress because I actually think that, you know, it, uh, a Biden administration doesn't need it. Uh, Matt, Matt, your take. Uh, what are the yeah. chances of improving on this in a divided Congress? Um, you know, I'll, I'll be maybe a bit more cautiously optimistic. You know, there had been prior efforts uh, through uh, retiring uh, Senate help chair Lamar Alexander and um, Senator Murray uh, to try and get some things done 
I, I think some of those, you know, ideas or concepts might be able to be resuscitated. And also I think a recognition too, as Eric uh, and Brandon were saying, right, that there are um, issues that can relate to, I think, COVID and, and the pandemic to, to build upon, not, not sort of at, you know, completely renovate or add a, you know, a new wing to the ACA, but to maybe, you know, uh, you know, fix some windows and, you know, uh, you know, patch some holes in the roof, uh, possibly to be able to, you know, get some additional people um, enrolled, right? I mean, there's still a, a big problem with the states who have failed to expand Medicaid, um, that there are, you know, tens of millions of Americans who actually don't qualify to make enough money to enroll through the ACA marketplace, yet their state's um, their eligibility requirements for Medicaid keep them from getting any type of coverage. You know, how can we help, you know, maybe some of those individuals and some other, you know, modest changes? Um, uh, and also, uh, you know, perhaps for some who are just, um, you know, make, make uh, enough money that they don't qualify for any assistance, but are by no means um, wealthy, um, but might have to pay premiums all on their own without any assistance. So there might be a couple of ways that we could help modify and get some more people enrolled that I'll, I'll remain cautiously optimistic because we're all about getting more people covered, but um, it's, it's not going to be easy. What about the public option? Is that a possibility? <laughs> you know, advocates are unlikely to give up on, pre on pressure for that, um, you know, or that that single payer debate, the public option. What what happens next with that with that debate? Well, I'll I'll take a shot at this one um, as the token liberal here. Um, but I I, I look the support for the public option and opposition to to the public option. I feel uh, out of this election was kind of frozen in place. Um, it, the, the election didn't pass judgment on that. And we have a Congress that's split and unlikely to pass any big uh, earth moving legislation. Um, you know, we, Brennan and I, our firm recently did a poll of folks who voted in 2020. Uh, healthcare was the third most important issue to Biden voters, and it wasn't even really on the radar for Trump voters. So this wasn't an election where people were going out there and kind of, despite everything happening, believe it or not, were not casting their vote uh, based on healthcare. Um, that's separate from the virus, but basically no one uh, uh, um, is doing that. So I think that what you've got is support and opposition kind of frozen in place. Um, but with a huge disruptive event coming in the near future. I mean, at the time we're recording this, we're looking at a second week with a million or more cases. Uh, we have the potential to see this really kind of, um, this pandemic explode over the next couple months. And I don't wanna be a chicken little running around talking about this, but an event of that magnitude has the ability to change people's minds about public policy issues. Uh, I, I would never make a prediction of what that would be. Um, the healthcare, uh, systems can be under tremendous strain. Uh, if people come out the other side of this unhappy with that, then the public option may be seem become an increasingly viable uh, uh, option for people two or four years down the road. Uh, if the flip side of that, of course, is if the healthcare um, uh, infrastructure can absorb all this, uh, the, the, these cases and treat people well, and um, and, and everybody is happy with it then you might see uh, enthusiasm for that wing. I'm like, you know, 
I, I wouldn't. I, I look at what's ha- going to happen in the coming months, and I'm afraid to make any predictions mm. of what will happen. All I would say is, I would not be surprised to see a lot of minds change in the next three, four, six months on healthcare policy as a result of what we're gonna, about to heading into. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Matt, can I get your opinion on that on the public option? It's a it's a very volatile time, as as Eric notes. I mean, I, I will take you know. S- some comfort in, in looking at the public option and saying, you know, at this point in time, if we think that um, government is the entire solution, I think we're really fooling ourselves. All uh, right. I mean, think about the response that we've had thus far, um, you know, to the pandemic. And I know things will change under a new administration, but that doesn't mean that the government can do it all by itself. We really do need to find ways for the, the, the public sector to work collaboratively with the private sector. Um, you know, I'll, I'll put it in maybe a bit crass terms. Um, do people really want to give up their Amazon Prime for the post office, right? Which is essentially what the public option would be is saying like, yeah, we just want the post office to take care of everything. Um, I, I don't think that's the way that we want it to work. We want the public sector and the private sector to work together. People want choices. Um, And I think coming out of this, people will recognize the innovations that we've seen, whether it be through telemedicine, um, you know, different ways of delivering care, um, you know, the ability to to be flexible and innovate. You would never see that in a system that was, you know, purely administered by the government. It really needs to be a a public-private sector partnership. Mm -hmm. Brendan, anything to add there? Yeah, and one of my sort of bottom line analyses of this election and where we go from here is that uh, the country voted for change, obviously, but I think they were, this was largely a referendum on Donald Trump, and it was a lot of people who were, were voting for Joe Biden were, were, were expressing their views on, on the president more than on Joe Biden. Um, and not necessarily, and, and what I mean by that is while they voted for a, a Democrat, they weren't necessarily voting for his entire agenda. And that is why you saw down ballot Democrats who ran on a big progressive agenda didn't do quite as well. And what that tells me is the country was ready for a change, but not necessarily ready for a big progressive agenda, particularly as it relates to healthcare. Now, of course, um, nothing is, is forever in politics and Democrats have a choice over the next two years do they try to make the case that um, you, know, you send a Democratic Congress to Washington in 2023 and, and then they can go forward on that? Um, I, I don't know that that is a good political decision. I, I think that uh, for a lot of the reasons that Matt just outlined would be a political loser. Um, but clearly that party feels passionately about it. There are a lot of people who are not just going to go away, Laura, as I think, as you said, um, they're going to want to keep talking about this. The question is, um, does the house then turn into sort of a laboratory to work on it and lay the groundwork for doing it later? Um, and so I, I think the debate is probably uh, on life support. I don't know that it's quite dead. Maybe it's just delayed. Um, but my takeaway from this election is that voters weren't ready for a, an over overreaching, far-reaching uh, democratic agenda on, on healthcare. No, no. Well, we're still stalled. And but you but you bring up such a great point, Brendan. Um, so clearly a lot of work to do. I did want to get back to the point of um, surprise medical billing, which you brought up, Brendan, um, because that's an issue that's on the table right now, too, um, in many states and, and nationally. Um, as 
we discussed some of these huge health issues. Matt, I, I want to ask you about surprise medical billing. When a patient may get services from someone who is an out-of-network uh, provider, some are calling on a national law now to provide true protection against these medical bills that are surprises for, for many um, patients. So what's your take on this issue and what do you think will happen with this? Will we have some kind of legislation that will stop this, that will protect patients? It's a problem that is long overdue in need of a solution. And I know AHIP and our member companies have advocated for well over a year now, you know, time's going by so quickly during the pandemic, but, you know, dating back well into early 2019 that we need to solve this, take patients out of the middle and, um, you know, providers and others need to be compensated based on a, on a market-based, uh, you know, rate. Uh, we think that that's the best way to do it. And, and, you know, unfortunately, I think the pandemic has highlighted, you know, really some of this um, egregious behavior at times um, and COVID-19 tests are a great example. I mean, we've done a lot of analysis uh, about um, what's happening with out-of-network tests, right? And health insurers have to pay for all tests, whether they're completed in or out of network. And you know the the, number, the charges that we've seen, right? So on average, it's about $130 per test. Um, we have seen you know instances of increased utilization of out-of-network tests and and charges that often exceed, you know. $250, $400, $1,000 for a single test, right? And that's just taking advantage of a crisis. And, you know, it cries out for a solution. You say, well, pay it based on some, you know, market-based amount, not on just, you know, what anyone is is willing to charge, uh, you know, given these situations. And, and I think it will highlight and create some additional momentum for why we really do need a, a solution once and for all, there's a there's a you know a small possibility it could be included in you know some end of year, but I think it's more likely you know to have to be addressed uh, you know in the next Congress. But we're going to keep on pushing uh, for it uh, with you know our partners, which include people uh, in employer groups, people in consumer groups, uh, and and others who just recognize that you know these kinds of charges that just are based in, in complete fiction and not based on anything in reality, just are, are one of the reasons that our, our system is unaffordable and needs to stop. Mm -hmm. Well, healthcare certainly at the top of the agenda for <laughs> this nation going forward. And um, this election is very important because, uh, and, and having this conversation right now is, is super important. Um, so, uh, I, you know, we always end this podcast talking about what's the next big thing in health. So let's go down the line and, you know, go coming out of this election, what is the next big thing in health um, that we should be talking about going into this new administration? I, I'm certain COVID is going to be the, the you know, the, the topic, but is it vaccines? Is it ACA? What, what, what should we be really focused on? Matt, let's start with you. Sure, um, and I'll put it top of the list, health equity. I think making sure that um, our healthcare system is giving equal opportunity to all individuals to um, have an excellent health outcome no matter where they live, whether it's in an urban area or rural area, what their income, race, color, uh, religion is. I think focusing on health equity is really, um, and how we do that um, is the next big thing. I'll wear my, my political hat 
and and say that I think the next big thing in health policy is a post-ACA health politics. And what I mean by that is the ACA law so colored everything that we did in Congress that it was really hard to have a straightforward, honest conversation about healthcare policy that didn't get distracted by it. And I'm hopeful that as we move past the latest um, Supreme Court ruling, and we're now you know a decade into the law, that we're able to make decisions without getting sidetracked by is this good or bad for the ACA, and really get back to is it good or bad for patients, is it good or bad for families, and I think that will ultimately lead to some better policy making decisions down the road. Great, Eric. Yeah, I, I do think we're looking at, as I've said several times, Brennan just had a different environment after we're past COVID. And I think one thing that'd be really interesting to look at is uh, the change in any disparity between urban and rural provision of healthcare. I mean, you know, a lot of our healthcare politics have been driven by the, by rural versus urban divides as much as partisan divides and uh, different approaches to what how public policy can save those things. and. Uh, what we've seen here is that COVID is a is a great equalizer. It's affecting everybody everywhere. It's if you're in New York City or you're on the Navajo Reservation, you are overwhelmed and taxed. And uh, I think it'd be really interesting to see if um, some of those divides start to break down and we start to find more common ways to solve problems across uh, all these different economic strata. Great, love it. Eric Smith, Brendan Buck, and my co-host Matt Isles. Thanks, guys, for the uh, great conversation. Really good insight, and and uh, love love everything that you said. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Next Big Thing in Health, brought to you by IBM. Traditional payer business models are under pressure. IBM Watson Health believes that modernization, collaboration, and personalization are key to evolving your business. That's why IBM Watson Health supports health plans in their business transformation by helping them break down data silos, drive value-based arrangements, improve care management, and engage members with personalized experiences at every touchpoint. Visit ibm.com backslash payer to learn how IBM Watson Health can help you accelerate change with data-driven solutions.